This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. We're up to a new week, and we'd like to welcome back to the show Charles Stolter, Associate Professor Associate Director of the Masters of Law and Space Center at the program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon, and hello, Professor Stolter. Good morning, Liz. I am really excited to have Charles Stotler on the show today. I mean, we we don't get a chance very often to showcase some of the great talent that we have here and diverse talent we have here at the University of Mississippi. Uh, And, you know, we we, uh, fortunately have uh, talked about some of the legal issues that are uh, the more day-to-day legal issues with a lot of our faculty. But uh, Professor Stotler uh, teaches and, and works in an area in air and space law and remote sensing. We had him on about drone law. Uh, in the past. So it's great to have him back. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, Charles, would you tell us a little bit about about your background, how you got into space law? Certainly. Uh, it's, you know, I, there are a lot of different avenues for getting into uh, the space industry and space law, I think. For me, it was um, um, a very fortunate circumstance where I went to law school in New Orleans at Loyola University. It just so happened that one of our alums had been the general counsel of NASA, and he came back and taught a course on space law. And I was already very much interested in the um, the intersection of domestic actors working in an international space, so at sea, at air, and I had no idea that space law existed. And so I took the course and absolutely loved it and um, worked very hard on a paper and then managed to publish it with the general space law published here by the University of Mississippi. This was uh, over 10 years ago. Um, and after I finished my JD and started working, uh, my first job was working with the Los Angeles City's Attorney's Office with LAX Airport. Um, Los Angeles owns and operates the uh, LAX Airport, and so their city attorneys work as uh, in-house counsel. I was working with them for about two years, two and a half years, um, so I had an aviation law component going on. I had this very strong interest in space law, and I decided to go back and specialize. I did a specialized degree in aviation and space law, and then just embarked on a series of really wonderful experiences working all over the world um, on aviation and space law issues in various capacities, working with the UN, working with um, trade associations, doing private consulting. And so um, I've had a really wonderful ride and now feel sort of with having published my first paper here with the University of Mississippi, uh, feeling as though I'm kind of coming home to the foundational university that uh, got me started on this process. Well, as you mentioned, uh, the University of Mississippi has been involved in space law for over five decades at this point. 
And I think people used to laugh at the concept, but now it's becoming really mainstream. And in fact, uh, you have a background in national security law. So space law has meaning in national security at this point. Well, that's a very interesting point. And so, as I said earlier, my interest was with individuals and commercial actors operating in international spaces. Um, and one of the fundamental aspects of space law and and activities in outer space is that there's always a national security component. So while I really wanted to be involved in the commercial aspects, it's impossible to avoid having to learn about and get involved with national security aspects too, um, at least from an academic perspective. Um, Take, for instance, some of the new developments that are happening in outer space. Um, There are commercial actors who want to go up and do things like refueling satellites, creating a secondary market for satellites. And so you have an actor that puts up a fleet of satellites, uh, and then they want to put up generation two of their satellites. Uh, They could sell those satellites that are already up there to another actor who would want to use them and repurpose them or refuel them and use them for the same purpose. The capability to approach a satellite and do things like refueling them or refurbishing them is called um, rendezvous and proximity operations. To be able to do that, uh, for commercial actors, looks to be like a potential boon, like there's going to be a big market there. For national security actors, that looks like a real threat. So uh, the ability to have a little arm that comes out and, say, anchors to a satellite um, and to allow you to do things like refueling is the same ability that could allow you to go up to, say, a U.S. national reconnaissance, reconnaissance satellite and disable it. Um, so there's a real connection. There's, there's always been a strong connection between the commercial sector and the national security actors uh, when you're talking about outer space. And if anyone who is listening would like to participate in our conversation, I find this very fascinating, too, with, um, you know, everything. I guess there's a definition that uh, Professor Stolter can tell us about what above your head is is space. So if you have a question, we'd love for you to be part of our show. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-672. 7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. And Professor Stolter, you did talk about the more and more that we're involved with space. You know, now there's tourism. Now there are jets that go across the the globe that, you know, will dip into space. Um, What are some other advances that more common people have uh, with space? Well, I think one of the misconceptions is that it's something exotic. Space capabilities have been affecting our lives on a daily basis for decades now. Um, The obvious example is GPS and the use of your cell phone to make a call halfway across the world. But I think few people understand or know how dependent we are on space capabilities. All the financial transactions that exist using an ATM machine, all the... um Everything that happens with stock exchanges around the world, these financial transactions are time-stamped using the uh, GPS satellites, uh, atomic clocks. And so a day without space is something people talk about. It would be absolutely catastrophic from an economic perspective, and I think that few Americans realize that that this dependency exists and, and just how very strong it is. 
Well, with that in mind, the president has recommended that we have a, or actually proposed a space force and also space command. I, you know, we, we talked about the show. We talked about space force, but in, in, you know, in connected to that is space command. What would those do, and how would they protect those assets in space? That's a good question. Um, so, I think protecting the assets is is the question that's trying to be figured out. Um, we recently saw an ASAT test by India, and um, this was an instance where India fired a missile up and destroyed one of its own satellites in orbit. Um, China conducted a similar test in 2007. Russia has conducted these tests in the past. The U.S. indeed has also done these tests. There are other counter-satellite capabilities, such as jamming. Um, and so, but the issue for the United States is that those other countries, potential adversaries, specifically speaking about China and Russia, do not have such a strong dependence on satellites, not for their economic not for not economically and for civilian use, um, but the U.S. military really relies very heavily on space capabilities and increasingly on commercial space capabilities. Starting in 2010, with the um, this, the national space policy put out by President Obama, um, there was a strong pivot towards embracing the commercial sector much more strongly um, for national security and for military purposes, space purposes. And um, and that can have potential effect for people even here in Mississippi. There are upwards towards 100 companies in Mississippi that touch and concern air and space in some way. And there are manufacturers here. And the more that the U.S. government pivots to and uses these commercial actors, the more businesses there's going to be, the more jobs there are going to be. Um, and so, yeah, so... But returning to your question, protecting the satellites is the question. The U.S. has a much stronger dependency on these satellites. And so the question is, um, are, is what we're doing currently enough, or do we need a dedicated space force? Or can it be done by a space command? Um, I think both proposals for of a space force and a space command are on the table, and both could probably go forward. Um, currently, the way space is handled from a military perspective is it sits under the U.S. Strategic Command. Um, and from that, all, all the various branches use the U.S. military and national security space assets and have access to the, to the information. Um, and so I think a U.S. Space Command would function in a similar capacity, but it would be its own dedicated command. Um, Space. Sorry. Yeah, Charles, I'm gonna, I hate to interrupt you because we want to continue this after the break. And I know Liz wants to give out the number so people can call and then we'll take a break. That's right. Uh, Rick is called in and he's holding. And if you would like to uh, learn more about uh, uh, the legality of the Space Force, why it would be of interest to Mississippians, would our Stennis Center have anything to do with it? We're going to continue our discussion with Professor Charles Stolter. Uh, from the University of Mississippi School of Law after the break. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. 
1-800-227-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. We realize not everyone has the chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Professor Charles Stolter, who's the Associate Director of the Masters of Law Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law and who was a guest on our September 25th program when we talked about the space aspect of drones. This morning we're talking a little bit, going a little bit higher up in altitude, talking about the Space Force and UN Peace Initiatives in Space and what that has to do with uh, the uh, Ole Miss Law School in Mississippi. And we're going to take our first call, and that is Rick from Madison. Rick, we're so glad that you've called in to, in legal terms, go ahead. So, thank you. The, uh, uh, in the Explorer days, uh, Columbus and such, that would have a, a, a sea ship that would go out and explore, plant a flag, and claim it for a country. In the terms of spaceships now that go out, and in terms of our moon, um, is the moon claimed of ownership, or are there any laws that have been passed, that is, I guess, at the U.N. level, uh, that would be reflective of, of ownership? Uh, th- indeed. Thank you for the question. It's a really interesting question. So um, in 1967, uh, the U.S. and other and the U.S., USSR, and, and many other states at that time actually entered into what's known as the Outer Space Treaty. And there's a provision in the Outer Space Treaty under Article 2 that states essentially that no country can create new territory in outer space. And so uh, when the U.S. went up in, uh, in the Apollo missions and planted a flag on the moon, it was largely symbolic. It was not um, done with the intention of creating territory on the moon. This is the, the notion that there can be no territory is being revisited today in light of the idea of um, resource extraction and resource utilization. So the question is, how can commercial companies build a business case for going up and doing something like mining on the moon if they can't own the plot of land that's there? Um, There's a fear amongst commercial actors that because of that provision in the Outer Space Treaty and other provisions, that they won't be able to own or use the resources. So the United States actually passed a law in 2015, at the end of 2015, um, 
establishing that U.S. actors can have property rights over things that are extracted. And why would a company want to go to the moon and do this? Um, you can get on the moon, there's water. And if you have water, you have hydrogen and oxygen, which are all the essential components for creating fuel. So if you could create something like a fuel depot in lunar orbit, you could use that to um, refuel satellites or to refuel ships to go to other destinations that are further away. Uh, so, so yes, indeed, there's currently it's not legal to claim territory on a celestial body. Professor Stadler, this is really, uh, really such a great, interesting topic, and it's one that I think people. 20 years ago looked on as kind of just being out there, but now it, it does affect our day-to-day lives. And so you were talking about Space Force and Space Command before, and how would that compare to what we have currently? And you mentioned Strategic Air Command, those kinds of things, but would it make a difference? Well, it, I, yes, it would make a difference. And so what the Space Force proposal does is to create an undersecretary position within the Air Force um, amongst other positions. Um, and so this would, this would elevate the activities that are currently happening under the U.S. Strategic Command um, to the undersecretary level. And space actors then would have a direct line of communication not that they don't already on some capacity, but a direct line of communication to the Secretary of the Air Force. So the um, the Space Force would still be nested within the Air Force. It would be a separate branch in the way that the Marine Corps is a separate branch, um, but it would it would still be nested within the Air Force. I think that there are a lot of pros and cons to this. Um, there's an ex- inherent expense. The Center for Strategic and International Studies has created some estimates on what the different kinds of um, restructuring would cost. And so there was a proposal for a space core in it's talk about a space core started around 2015. So this idea of a space force or some kind of reorganization is not new. Um, it's been around for a while. And um, so the proposal for a space force was estimated to cost about $11 billion. Um, the pres- proposal for setting up a space force can cost anywhere from 13 to 21 billion dollars and so we're looking at a substantial cost increase i think there are potential benefits too one of the unique things about actions in space is that i mean it's a completely different environment the way actors look at space now is it's a particularly national security and military actors it's it's a medium to accomplish the objectives that they want to do in air, sea, and land. What that does is um, I, I think it doesn't give the priority to space that space needs, given that this environment is fragile. If we have another ASAT test, the recent India ASAT test indeed has created debris that threatens the International Space Station. To have things going on up there where... You could create more debris, can threaten our communications, our banking system, the International Space Station, remote sensing. The amazing things we're doing with remote sensing satellites today, uh, including um, uh, tracking migrants, tracking animals. I mean, there, there's a host of things that are going on with remote sensing that are extraordinarily valuable. Um, all of that is threatened by military activities in outer space. And so it's kind of counterintuitive. 
when the Space Force was first proposed, people thought that the Space Force would threaten those things. I think that, in fact, having a stronger voice within the U.S. military branch system can prioritize the space environment and actually lead to um, people wanting to preserve the environment uh, so that it can be used for all these other purposes. Well, you know, legally, uh, you know, so we talk about law, and one thing that I think when the Mississippi legislature passes a law that affects Mississippians, clearly that's, that's enforced. How does United States law, if we create a law, it really doesn't impact other countries and prevent other countries from doing things in space that, that may be harmful. So how, how do we come together internationally to make sure that legally space is protected? Again, this is done by a series of treaties that were created um, under the auspices of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, um, which is a committee of the UN that sits in Vienna. And so during the 1960s and early 1970s, actually up until the early 1980s, 1979, um, there were a series of treaties negotiated that... uh, ostensibly do that. They, they work to protect each state's interests in outer space. Um, one, of the, one of the more salient provisions being Article 9 of the Outer Space Treaty, which says that you shall not interfere with another state's activities in outer space. You have to give due regard to their activities. Right? So if a U.S. actor goes up and is uh, mining resources from an asteroid or from the moon, other states have to give those actors the due regard that will be afforded to the United States, even if it's a commercial actor. Okay, but let me ask the question. You know, if you break the law in Mississippi, there's law enforcement. Uh, how on an international basis in space do you enforce that? So let's say a country says, well, we're just going to ignore the treaty. That's a very good question. I mean, this is a question that... Um, people raise all the time about international law generally. Um, it's a system of nation states, and it's it's the states themselves that are the enforcers. So they're the subjects of the law, but also the police force for the law. Um, and one example I like to use is, and maybe it's not a very strong example, but if you walk into the post office and get in line, um, you know, if someone comes and cuts the line, I don't care who it is, someone in the line is going to say, hey, get to the back of the line. Even if it's, you know, an octogenarian, you know, old elderly woman, um, she's going to voice her opinion. That's really how international law works. You don't need a police officer sitting there to enforce it. Um, You have the condemnation of the other states to enforce it. And that sounds weak, but the real benefit of international law is that States actually want to follow these rules a lot of the times because they are uh, they get huge benefits from them. There are huge benefits from collaboration at the international level, commercial benefits. You know, all the international trade laws that we have exist that keep goods flowing across borders, keep people working and manufacturing things. They need reset. They need rebalanced at times. But without those there, um, the consequences would be bad for economies around the world. Space is the same way. States want to see these rules enforced, particularly when it comes to things like telecoms. There's a body that sits in Geneva called the International Telecommunications Union that sets standards and regulations for spectrum use and um, 
And states like that body. They want that body to function. They respect the rules that are made um, because it allows their actors to conduct commercial telecommunications activities um, without being interfered with. Before we take the break, I just want to ask, so how did a student that goes through your LM program in space, in air and space, what kind of job opportunities would they have out of, say, Space Force? Directly out of Space Force, that's currently unclear. I mean, so clearly there will be something that happens commercially. As I mentioned earlier, there's going to be a lot more commercial activity uh, feeding into the DOD and national security um, interests and needs. Um, so there will be opportunities there. Uh, of course, there will be policy and lawmaking activities. Congress is, is doing a lot now on Space Force and and other aspects that are related that will require people, legislative assistants, and other people like that to be de- to be analyzing these things. And uh, a, a law degree from the the Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi will e- equip a student to deal with those issues. Um, but then there's also other other opportunities not directly related with space with the Space Force. Um, of course, there are there are law firms and companies that need lawyers that understand international space law and international telecommunications law. There are launch providing companies that re, that need people who understand launch regulations um, and the laws that are behind them. And so, uh, I think that this program opens a lot of doors for Mississippi students to work with not only Mississippi companies but also NASA and then national actors uh, who in D.C. and other places. And we are the only air and space LLM in the United States, and that's really uh, something that is unique for our state. I know we have to take a break, Liz, so I'm going to let you give the uh, phone number if you don't mind. That's right. We're talking with Professor Charles Stotler, Associate Director of the Masters of Law and Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. We're talking about space law, but we hope you'll give us a call. We want to hear what you think. What are your questions? Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert and co-host. We hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. There are lots of different podcasting platforms. You just go to your uh, phone's store, download it to your phone. On mine, I touch a plus button. That took me to the page to search for podcasts. Then I typed in In Legal Terms in the search area. It brought up our In Legal Terms logo 
logo, and I was able to touch on the photo, then subscribe. And I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we're talking about space law. It's not as far-fetched as it seems. It's part of our everyday life now. And our guest is Professor Charles Stotler, Associate Director and the of the Masters of Law for Air, at the Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. Let's continue this fascinating topic. Uh, we've been talking about the militarization of space, um, and you've touched a little bit about on using it for industry. Can you continue? Certainly, yeah. And so, you know, this term, the militarization of space, is a bit misleading because space has been militarized from the beginning. The earliest actors uh, working in space and doing things in space were militaries, um, the U.S. and USSRs specifically. Um, and indeed, even, you know, going back to uh, the launch of Sputnik in 1957, um, militaries were involved in space. The U.S., under the Eisenhower administration, po- took a really interesting tack on this. Um, and so they wanted to diffuse that tension of military actors in outer space. This is before the 1967 Outer Space Treaty was put into place. Um, that does have some create some guarantees that space won't be used for aggressive purposes um, and prohibits things like putting nuclear weapons in orbit or weapons of mass destruction in orbit. Um, But none of that existed yet, and the Eisenhower administration wanted to send a signal to the USSR that it didn't want a conflict in space. And so what it did when it created NASA was it created a civilian organization. So it's a civil agency um, that is not directly affiliated with the U.S. Air Force. Of course, there are collaborative things that have occurred over the decades, um, but this idea of having a freestanding civil agency, um, some describe as what's called as a transparency and confidence-building measure, a means that we can let other countries know, like China and Russia, that we intend to use outer space for peaceful purposes. That doesn't mean, however, that we can't use it for military purposes. Um, It's perfectly legal under international law to use outer space for military purposes, um, so long as those are defensive purposes. Um, So we can take pretty much any action up there, uh, so long as we're doing it in the name of self-defense. So we talk legally. Uh, How how do we try to protect the peace? And what is the U.N. doing to try to protect the peace in outer space? Because... You know, I think about it. If there's a conflict between, say, Russia and the United States, and I'm living in Argentina, that's going to affect me if it happens in space. So how do we look globally at protecting the world? So the U.N. has a lot of endeavors going on on avoiding military confrontations in space. Um, And the idea is first... Backing up on the UN, I think it's important to understand the UN gets a bad name sometimes. It's you know people think of it as a some sort of supranational government. The UN can't really do anything its member states don't want it to do, and so the United States um, can really be in the driving seat when it comes to whatever's going to happen in outer space, and it really has been for since the 1960s. Um, uh, 
and so some of the endeavors that have been having that the UN has been doing to deal with um, arms, a potential arms race in outer space or the military use of outer space is gaining consensus between member states, particularly China, Russia, the U.S., and now India, on um, what they're going, how they're going to limit themselves. And so reaching consensus agreements on um, how they're going to, on, on what's best for them. Uh, how best to preserve that environment so everybody can benefit from it. Um, and so these actions are taking in, there are a couple different entities within the UN that deal with these things. One is the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, and that committee is dedicated towards peaceful uses, which is scientific exploration. Um, and increasingly now we're seeing interest from commercial actors, what happens there. Um, this is the committee that developed things like orbital debris mitigation guidelines um, and the other treaties that I mentioned earlier treaties on liability treaties on the rescue and return of astronauts um, but that's one side of the house on the other side of the house uh, the disarmament side of the house or the international security side of the house is the conference on disarmament the disarmament commission and then some ad hoc initiatives and what these entities work on is creating transparency and confidence building measures, which are non-binding agreements between states that they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to act in this manner um, and, and in a manner that doesn't threaten the other state or doesn't create new debris or those sorts of things, voluntary initiatives. And then there are also other efforts within the Conference on Disarmament to develop a treaty on the prevention of an arms race in outer space, particularly the prevention of the placement of weapons in outer space. Um, China and Russia have proposed this treaty starting about a decade ago, um, and it's not gotten any traction, largely because the U.S. doesn't support it. Other nations don't support it either, though. It's not just the U.S. So there's sort of a divide within nation states on the propriety of this treaty. Um, that has somewhat to do with um, ASATs, um, anti-satellite uh, missiles. And so the advantage for Russia and China are having ASATs because the U.S. is so dependent on its satellites. This treaty would not outlaw ASATs, which is the issue that the United States keeps raising, and the United States has always supported an ASAP ban. Um, so there's no consensus on these two endeavors, and there are, but there are different things going on within different entities dealing with these prevention of arms rates and outer space issues um, that are trying to tackle these problems in different ways. It's interesting. I am a hopeless optimist, so I really think that space may lead to more peaceful existence on Earth simply because the resources that are available in space, the resources that we've fought over on this planet for generations, uh, are within our reach now. Uh, energy, uh, minerals that will be useful as well are abundant in space, and we couldn't get to them before, but now the technology is there, so... Yeah, Professor no, Gershon, I'm so glad that you are such an optimist. That's why we love having you on, on this show. We need to take our last break of the hour. Uh, there's still opportunity for our listeners to call in with questions or email us. If you can't speak on the phone right now and you're not driving a car, our number is one eight seven seven. 
MPB ring. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. In legal terms on MPB Think Radio. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms today. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on our MPB public media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We're having a very interesting discussion today about the space law program at the University of Mississippi School of Law with the Associate Director, Professor Charles Stotler. And you were talking about how some of the uh, the UN intervention. Tell us, uh, what is Space 3030? Uh, this is an initiative to, to ensure the peace, peaceful uses of outer space, and it's a collaborative endeavor um, between an organization called the UN Office for Outer Space um, and other philanthropic entities that want to ensure peace in outer space. And this is an interesting... Um, so the, the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs, or USA, is the executive arm of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Their office is in Vienna. Um, and again, as I said, they, they classically hadn't had anything to do with um, non-disarmament or disarmament issues. That's not entirely true. So when the committee was first set up, there was a big debate between then the USSR and the United States and other nations about whether this committee should deal with military issues. And it was decided, well, not really. Its mandate is going to be peaceful uses, which are civilian, commercial, things like that. Um, But then in the 1960s, the committee did indeed negotiate treaties that have non-armament and military aspects. So the Outer Space Treaty has a couple of articles in it that deal with military activities in outer space, and then the Moon Agreement, which was negotiated in the 1970s, also has provisions on that. So the Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space was working on these um, non-armament issues and disarmament issues, Um, and then it was determined again in the 1980s that this committee probably should not be dealing with those things. This was a very strong pushback by the United States to have those issues dealt with in other um, areas within the UN, such as the Conference on Disarmament, which was established in 1979. And so the Dealing with military issues was pulled again out of the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. But then, in, starting in 2013, with a report that came out from the UN, it was a report that was commissioned by the UN Secretary General, um, that said that actually some of the issues that 
the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space is working on are directly related to uh, some of the non-armament and disarmament issues. And so these entities, instead of being stovepiped, now are required to start working together. And Space as a Driver for Peace is an initiative that has sort of developed out of that new change, that transition that started about five years ago. Charles, uh, you know, one thing that I think people might be interested in is, so how can they get involved with the emerging uh, economy of space, the emerging opportunities with space? And right now, our program is designed for law students and who will deal with law and policy. Can you talk a little bit about the new program that you're going to be offering? Yes, so we're starting a graduate certificate in air and space law um, this coming fall semester, and it's a program that is, uh, it's essentially the Masters of Law light. It's a program that's available for non-law students and non-lawyers, people who have an interest in aerospace industries, who may work in aerospace industries or have an educational background in something related to aerospace industries, and who would like to have a better understanding of how the law, policy, and regulation aspects work. And so um, this is part of an endeavor, a university-wide endeavor, to create more... um, synergies between different areas of education, um, cross-disciplinary education, and to give opportunities to people who typically wouldn't study space law or air law to do so. Um, so we're, we're hoping that it, it's looking to be fairly popular so far. We've got several applicants, and there seems to be a lot of interest being generated around it. Um, and we're looking to fill that gap in, in you know, uh, people who people who may work on regulatory who may work on have a science background who may work on but want to work on regulatory issues within a larger company say you're an engineer that working on radio telecommunications equipment and you need to get um, the authority from the FCC in order to use this equipment we can explain to you how that process works that sounds great I'm really happy you're doing that and I think it's a really innovative and uh, going to be a fantastic addition to what you're already doing. Mm-hmm. Let me ask one more question, too, Mississippi-related. Uh, we have Stennis Space Center, we have, which is a really uh, great resource for our state. It's been you know there for a, while, a long time. It employs a lot of people. How will some of these uh, initiatives in space affect Stennis, do you think? Well, so as I mentioned earlier, NASA has always been a civil space agency. So the the movement towards the Space Force probably is not going to affect Stennis directly. But it will – commercialization is happening across the board, whether it's civil space or military space. Um, Stennis recently has started taking on commercial actors to test engines there. So uh, – as commercial capabilities ramp up to meet the needs of Space Force, there's a chance that these facilities will will be used more frequently to do things like test engines, as they do in Stennis. Stennis is going to be, um, I mean, as in, as we get back to the moon, there we have this an accelerated timeline now, um, wherein we want NASA. Vice President Pence announced that we would have an accelerated timeline to get boots back on the moon. Um, Stennis will be involved in that process. Originally, it was thought that the the test firings were not going to happen there because they couldn't fit into the accelerated timeline, but now it's looking like they will be. Um, And so from military to civil space across the board, there's going to be a lot more activity in Mississippi. 
Well, that's great news and uh, and exciting news. It's a, you know, a different industry, a new industry yeah. that people can uh, be involved in. Yeah, very so. Now, you talk talk a little bit about some of the classes you teach here and what. Sure. What, how, how how do you train someone to be a space lawyer? It's an odd thing because it's still evolving. Um, Classically, I mean, space law started really at the international level, and uh, there's not really a way to practice international law unless you're dealing with transnational uh, transactions. Um, but from a, so from a space background, space space law background, the the work classically was in uh, policy uh, lawmaking in D.C. or internationally dealing with diplomatic issues. Then uh, there's you know there are very few people who actually get to engage in that. Um, um, but that number is increasing. But also across the board, there's a greater need for people who understand how space law policy and regulation work um, because of the increasing commercialization. So we're seeing new constellations of satellites being put up for remote sensing and telecommunications, many more companies getting involved. Um, those companies need people who understand transactional law, people who are classically trained in business law, but they also need someone who also has an understanding of how space regulations and space law works. So you need a, a combination now of the business law background and the space law background uh, in order, I think, in order to be successful in these in these industries. Um, and on the aviation side of things, there's always been a lot of work for aviation law students. I mean, airlines, the firms that represent them, um, there's always a very strong demand for aviation lawyers. Absolutely. And they are related. And I will say that uh, tax law will play a role in, uh, in space, and it already does in aviation law as well. A huge well. role. In, indeed. Yeah, a huge role. Tax and finance. I mean, financing a satellite is not an easy thing to do. Well, we have about four minutes left, and I would love for you to talk about um, the Manford Locks uh, International Space Law Moot Court Competition that our students have participated in. Sure. This is an annual Moot Court Competition um, put on by the International Institute of Space Law, which is an international organization that has regional um, affiliates. Um, uh, and so every year the contest occurs in the North American round in Washington, D.C. There are various regional rounds all over the world. Um, students come together. They they receive the problem. They, they spend, it's a really intensive work, work experience for them. They spend months researching and drafting a memorial um, that is to be presented at the uh, competition, and then they practice for hours and hours for their oral arguments, and uh, they get up there and they act like a lawyer would act if they were going before the International Court of Justice dealing with the space law issue. Um, that Again, that happens in D.C. for the North American round, and if you win the North American round, you go on to an international round. The winners of each regional round uh, go on and compete internationally. It's a huge tournament. It's gathering... Um, it's gathering interest every year. It's grown to almost 20 teams in the North American round alone. Um, so schools across the nation are participating, in it, and it's a really terrific opportunity for students to get, to get experience dealing with um, drafting memorial and then presenting oral arguments. And our students have been able to argue in other countries after winning the North American round. That's correct. We had students that went to Australia to argue in the international round uh, several years ago. Uh, our students always perform very strongly in this competition. Um, uh, you, you know, we, we 
fared very well this year. We've had a, the over the past five years, we've not gotten below the quarterfinal rounds, um, and indeed have won the international rounds on one occasion and the North American rounds on two occasions. So, it's fantastic. Yeah. On the last minute or so we have left, is there something that you want people to know about space law that maybe they didn't know coming into this conversation? Mm, Sorry to put you on the spot. Broad question. Okay. Uh, I, you know, off the top of my head. It, just that it's absolutely dynamic and changing rapidly. It's a good time to be following it. The FAA just put out a new notice of proposed rulemaking on streamlining launch requirements for companies. The FCC put out a, a notice of proposed rulemaking on uh, orbital debris a couple of months ago. And so these things are very much in flux. And they, as we discussed earlier in the program, um, they're going to affect us on our daily lives, everything from transactions at ATMs to cell phone conversations to GPS. And so, um, you know, you don't have to be an international law geek or a space law geek like me um, to tune in and just sort of follow them. There's, there are great accessible resources like Space News, which is a great publication that gives you really concise summaries of these developments. Um, so I, I recommend tuning in. We'll also be interested to hear if there's litigation with the Boeing incidences, uh, mm. because those are were crashes in multi nations outside of the United States, and it's a United States company. And how we'll look to see if there's a governing body and what ramifications that holds. Well, if we have time, there's there been several cases that have been filed already. We don't so, have time. <laughs> unfortunately. We'll have to have you back. <laughs> That'll have to be another one. But Professor Charles Stutler, we're so glad that you were part of our show today. Thank you for having me. It's been terrific. And if, you, if folks want to go back to listen on the app or on our website or on our podcast, we've had our Air and Space folks on a few times. They've talked about different things from drones to airlines. Uh, this one was on space, but please go back and listen to some of our other interviews. They're just fantastic. That's going to wrap us up for today for In Legal Terms. We thank our board engineer, Jay White. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy show, Relatively Speaking. Join us again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.